Hey, Kate. Yeah? Do we give legal advice on this podcast? Oh, gosh, no. Hostile work environment. Exactly. Hey, an appropriate workplace topic. Hostile work environment. I'm the human resources director. Little Miss Hostile Work Environment. Hello, and welcome to the Hostile Work Environment podcast. <laughs> my name is Mark Alifans. I'm here, as always, with my wonderful co-host, Kate Bischoff. Kate has been traveling around the country, going to all yes. sorts of places, except to visit me. <laughs> Kate, well, Kate, how I, was your trip last week? My trip last was great. And by the way, I was traveling for work. I had to fly mm-hmm. through Denver And because I was coming home on a Friday and I didn't have my children, I decided to stay in Denver, in Colorado for the weekend. I got to get the great sand dunes off my bucket list. So it was great. I got to see some friends. It was lovely. One of the things that that Kate likes to do to me is she will tweet at me pictures (laughs) of wherever she goes because I'm a geography nerd and try to get me to to answer them. And this time she did it, and I was working on it, and she gave she 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 gave up on me way too fast. I was I was gonna get it, maybe, uh, maybe I was gonna get it. Uh, yeah, the first one was really hard. The second one I would have gotten. Yeah, but, you would have gotten the second. Time. Yeah, you would have gotten the second one in part because you knew the first one, so you knew. Well, and I knew the rough area you were in. I was yeah. just trying to think. I was like. I was trying to – often what, what I do is I try to figure out what time of day you take the picture, and then I can see the shadows, oh. and that will tell me what direction you're facing. Um, I'm that oh, kind of nerd. I am that kind of nerd. There's a whole secret to it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and the picture that you took, the first one, it had no shadows, and I couldn't – I just <laughs> – I was trying to figure out directions, and yeah. Mm. Anyway, it was hard. But it well, looked like it – you can only get to the Great Sand Dunes from the east side of the Great Sand Dunes. You have to walk into them to be on the other side. Yeah, I didn't know enough about the geography there quite, and I hadn't quite nailed down the sand dunes. It looked sand duny, but I also didn't. <laughs> anyway, I wasn't there yet. I would have gotten there, but I wasn't there <laughs> okay. yet. Um, but it looked like an awesome trip. It was a really good trip. I do have to say, for anybody who lives in Colorado, I really hope you can avoid fires because I looked at that and went, oh my gosh, this looks dangerous for me even to be here. Should we rake this forest? I don't know. Like it was, it's dry. It's really dry. Very dry. And I I fear that the Pacific Northwest will be in the same boat by later this summer uh, Mm -hmm. because we've had lighter, lighter than average rainfall this spring. And we remember the fires from last, last summer that we had here where we basically had to shut all our windows for a week and, um, had air hazard warnings all the time, and there was no place no to go. Good. So uh, hopefully we'll avoid so, that this summer. We have a big anniversary this week. Uh, yes. Tuesday will be the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. Uh, as a resident of Minneapolis, uh, we've had events across the city. Yesterday I went to one where they had taken all of the um, plywood that was put on to businesses and then murals painted on it. And so a group of women have gathered those boards to save them. And so they put a display up in one of our city parks and it was really quite amazing. Um, If I'm to say there's, I had a favorite, my favorite would have been skin color is not reasonable suspicion, which I thought was really interesting. Um, And because 
that particular event really had reverberations through employment law and through HR departments about what are we doing enough for diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging? Like, what are, are we doing enough? Um, I thought we should probably mark that event um, because it will conti- it continues to be something that is driving HR decisions across the country. Yeah, I'm, I struggle to think of a more impactful event, both in the HR community and business and employment community, and just for our society at large. If you look at um, yeah. uh, the activism that has that has occurred over the last year in many cities, including my own, um, it's been hugely impactful. And within the the HR space, uh, I haven't seen anything quite that impactful since Me Too a few years ago mm-hmm. uh, started up. Not that the Me Too is over by any stretch of the imagination, yeah. but but since that started, uh, this this has to be um, marked as as uh, an anniversary, but also as as a uh, to acknowledge the change that it has brought uh, in a positive direction um, uh, in in and- HR and society. Right. And still demanding. Like we're still, you know, we have have so far to go and Mm -hmm. we've come some way, but we have still so much further to go that I hope all of the organizations that decided to spend more money to make statements are, you know, trying to hold themselves accountable to that so that we do see significant changes, um, that we do see things that will make everyone feel like they're valued, heard, and respected in the workplace. So that's what I'm hoping for, that as HR looks back at what happened on a year ago Tuesday, looks at what they have been doing to see if they've been making the changes that are necessary. So. Yeah, here, here. <laughs> uh, so. We have four stories today for you all. And before we get into them, I will say that they will they will move in increasing order of inappropriateness for young ears. Uh, in particular, uh, we have a violence and sex episode ahead, um, so please keep that in mind as you listen. I don't normally put that much of a disclaimer on, but we've got some pretty gnarly stuff coming up here. So, okay. Um, okay. With that. I think we're going to start. Kate's got a really interesting uh, situation and story to talk about uh, to, to lead us off, and then we, we will we will move from serious to less serious over the course of well, I, they're all still kind of serious, but <laughs> over the course of this podcast today. Yes. So I want to start with. Uh, the University of North Carolina's decision not to grant tenure to Nicole Hannah Jones. If you're unfamiliar with Nicole Hannah-Jones, first, you need to be on her Twitter. Um, She's N. Hannah-Jones, I think, is her handle. But her name on Twitter is Ida B. Wells. And Ida B. Wells being a very famous journalist who made her entire career, really, about documenting lynchings throughout the country. And so her work was incredibly seminal, important. Uh, And recently won the Pulitzer uh, following her, I mean, she's dead. I mean, she well, she won it, even though she's dead. Uh, Han, Nicole Hannah Jones, also winner of a Pulitzer this year, uh, and she is a MacArthur Genius Grant winner. She was up for tenure following her hire as a knight scholar, a knight, this swashbuckling form of knight, um, Lancelot-ish. She was hired as a knight scholar at the University of North Carolina. 
she was up for tenure and her tenure was denied. She had been through the faculty review. She'd been through all, she jumped all through the hoops. She just needed the blessing of the University of North Carolina's Board of Trustees, of which she did not get. Now, someone reported to North Carolina Policy Watch, I believe is the, the paper, Anonymous source said that the political environment made granting Hannah Jones tenure difficult, if not impossible. So what made this impossible? Well, the work for which Nicole Hannah Jones received her greatest accolades and also a huge amount of criticism is the 1619 project that was published by the New York Times in 2019. Now, if you are unfamiliar with the 1619 project, there are books coming out re relatively soon, but also it's a free resource that you do not need a New York Times subscription to look to. And it provides an overview of how America got started in the form of should we look at when slaves arrived in on this continent as really the beginning of the U.S. Because when they did, it built our economy, our social structure, and which still has reverberations through to today. Um, and it is really important work. It's fascinating. It is crucial to read. I know that one of my sons spent some time reading 1619 and was just like flabbergasted about the impact it had. And so if you've been following what's been happening to 1619, you may know that there's been an incredible amount of conservative backlash against it. In fact, the Texas legislature is making teaching 1619 projects unlawful in the state. Um, the Trump administration made threats that it was going to investigate any institution that was using the 1619 framework. Let, let me just interject there for just a sec. Like, apologies, but like the liberals get branded as snowflakes by conservatives. <laughs> Give me a break. You can't mm -hmm. handle some, some truthful history, mm -hmm. right? You can yeah. argue about context and about where it fits in in the overall narrative of American history. You and I would both argue that it's essential and necessary history yeah. to have, but you can't even have a discussion about it. You have to ban people from talking about it and withhold tenure for people who, who bring it up you're the snowflakes. Thank you. Uh, and, and cancel. Interruption culture. over. <laughs> yes. So these ideas, which, you know, the companion, and and I would say, maybe companion is not the right word, but one that uh, a legal theory that runs along with 1619 is critical race theory, that right. we should look at decisions and look at system systemic racism as an issue that we still have to wrestle with and we still have to work through. Um, and and we've that, talked about that order from the Trump, the executive order from the Trump administration that came out that, that, that never fortunately got to take effect because the election happened and Biden became president and, and it was short lived uh, yes. as it was. But um, again, that's another attempt to try to, to erase and, and literally whitewash history. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's all tied in with this issue. Yes. Now, from a legal perspective, uh, I saw a lot of tweets uh, in particular saying that someone, sh she should sue the University of North Carolina for race discrimination. And 
while I am totally in favor of her getting tenure, because I think tenure exists exactly for this reason, um, particularly when it's seminal work, like it, this is viewpoint discrimination, hands down, no, no questions No asked, question. Right? No question. She should have tenure. But I'm not sure it gets really to race discrimination, because when we look at the burden shifting analysis, and I'm using air quotes, uh, even though that's what it's called, you, you know, the plaintiff has to show that uh, they are qualified for the position, that, the, you know, similarly situated people would have received tenure, et cetera. Then the employer has to show or just show, not prove, just produce a reason why they didn't give her tenure. Um, and then she would have to show that that reason is false. And the reason Pretext, that, yes. yeah, the reason University of North Carolina said she doesn't get tenure is because she doesn't have of the breadth of academic uh, credentials that normally would have. She doesn't have a PhD, but she has a master's degree from the University of North Carolina. Ha ha. And the Knight Scholar position was evaluates professional experience more than academic experience. And because she won the Pulitzer, like there's no question that she gets the professional experience there. So the only thing that's left is, is this race discrimination why she didn't get tenure? And I think that's a hard thing to prove. I, I mean, I, I, I look at this, um, if I'm defending the university here, right, and we're, mm -hmm. and we're using the burden shifting framework that you just talked about, I think it has, I think she's got a problem on two parts of it. First is that fourth prong, uh, similarly situated individuals outside of the protected class were treated differently. Now, mm -hmm. I think she's going to have a hard time proving that if if it was a white professor bringing forth the who, who who brought forth the 1619 project that they wouldn't have treated that white professor the same way because it's about it's about the yeah. content not about the skin color um those skin color ties into all of it obviously for mm -hmm. other reasons but not in terms of this specific decision that you know i i think the the university would be able to successfully argue that it, a similarly situated so another uh uh, tenure candidate who brought forth similar critical race or 1619 yeah. types of issues. We don't want anything to do with that. We wouldn't grant that person tenure either. Well, that kills that kills the claim right there if they can't yeah. get past that burden. And if they're somehow still able to get past that burden, and then they meet the easy, the university meets the easy burden of production of a reason, mm -hmm. right? Then they still have to basically prove it all again. Uh, at a higher level, even more, to say this was a lie. The reason you gave was not the real reason. It was a lie. Right. It was pretext for actual race discrimination about her, not right. about the issue that she brought forward, but about her. And, right. you know, we can argue all day long whether that's what the law should be or not, right? I mm -hmm. think it's a minimum bar. Right. There's mm -hmm. reasons to think that that you and I both think that this shouldn't be a reason to deny someone tenure. The question yeah. is, how do you reframe a standard that that gets to this, but that doesn't open a Pandora's box to everything? Right. And, Absolutely. And it's very difficult, which is why the law is imperfect, um, and it's a minimum bar, a minimum standard in a lot of cases. And and you and I can both can both say this is an outrage. This is terrible. 
Like if we were on that board of trustees, we'd be saying something different. Um, mm-hmm. In the end, though, I agree with you. I think a legal claim here, it will be an uphill battle at best. For sure. Um, and the case law out there, particularly around tenure decisions, is not great. Um, in fact, there's a couple of decisions out there, including one from my home Circuit Court of Appeals, the Eighth Circuit, that gives even more deference to an educational institution Mm -hmm. that is making a tenure decision than just a regular employer. Like, you know, there's tenure is so weird as a concept and as a, uh, yeah. Well, and, and, you know, Circuit Courts of Appeals love to quote the, we are not a super HR department language. Well, this even puts a really big thumb on a scale on behalf of an educational institution because they're making these difficult decisions or quote unquote difficult decisions. But ultimately, from a Pew research in 2017, which I'm not sure in the last four years has really changed, only 6% of professors at higher education institutions are Black which suggests there's a uh, there's a huge issue here and whether it's this single decision for Nicole Hannah Jones or it's an, a much bigger systemic institutional problem there's a problem and universities are going to have to reckon with that issue. Yeah, there's still potential out there for a disparate impact kind of argument as opposed to a yes. disparate treatment kind of argument. Sorry, I'm nerding out with with very technical <laughs> uh, employment law language here. Uh, but that even then it would have to be to the university itself, not citing a national statistic, but how right. does UNC do? Uh, perhaps she'd have a better chance with a disparate impact kind of claim saying you have systemically or or even unintentionally discriminated against non-white tenure, uh, I don't know if it's a tenure applicant or tenure professor, you <laughs> right. know, whatever you call them, uh, right. that, and, and that the statistics bear that out. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then there's a discussion of what a remedy there would be. Uh, but uh, as it goes as just pure disparate treatment, I think this is a tough claim. Yeah. Again, I want her to have tenure. Yes. I, I'm Make that very thrilled. clear. We both want that. Yeah. I'm thrilled with her scholarship. I just think the law is not adequate to respond to this here. So, Yeah. What do you got for me? Some violence, some sex? Come on, share. Well, well speaking, well, <laughs> I was going to say, speaking of violence and sex, should we talk about Rick Santorum? Oh. <laughs> well, given that his Urban Dictionary name is yes, really quite yes. something, I, if, yes. If you, you can go back, and I th- was it Colbert? I forget who I forget who it was that that coined that in the first place. Um, right. We will not talk about that specific definition of the word Santorum. <laughs> if you want to know, there there is a different. Named yeah, after and if Rick. you're if you're listening to this on your way to work, don't Google it when you get to work. Get, oh, Just wait do it, until do you it get on home. A, on a non-work device if you're going to yes. do that. Yeah, um, <laughs> if you don't know what we're talking about. But Rick Santorum, former Republican senator from my home state of Pennsylvania, uh, has been a uh, CNN commentator for some time now, and got in some hot water recently over comments he made about Native American culture. And mm-hmm. I had missed this, but this is breaking news. Uh, this I just started seeing this come out about an hour ago. CNN has fired Rick Santorum for these comments. And what happened was he made a speech on April 23rd 
for at the Standing Up for Faith and Freedom conference. Did, did you attend, Kate? Oh, of course not. <laughs> uh, where the the theme of his speech was birthing a nation from nothing. Now, and, and interestingly, oh, we hadn't. Oh, I mean, it's racist from the get go, right? Well, and and it's funny, not. I mean, kind of funny and coincidental, not funny. Ha ha. That that we hadn't planned this at all. You and I both just show up. We're like, what are you going to talk about? Oh, I'll talk about this. What are you going to talk about? I'll talk about this. That this actually that actually ties right into what we just talked about with 1619 Project from a completely different angle uh, of another (laughs) completely discriminated against and taken advantage of group Native Mm -hmm. Americans, right? And Mm -hmm. so so the Standing Up for Faith and Freedom Conference is from the Young America Foundation, conservative youth organization. And this video clip uh, went viral. And he said, uh, mostly European settlers settlers created a nation based on Judeo-Christian principles and the teachings of Jesus Christ. And here's the quote. We came here and created a blank slate. We birthed a nation from nothing. I mean, there was nothing here. I mean, yes, we have Native Americans, but candidly, there isn't much Native American culture in American culture. It was born of the people who came here pursuing religious liberty to practice their faith live as they ought to live, and have the freedom to do so. That's the quote that has stirred up all of the controversy. And CNN... Appropriately so. Appropriately so. Now, we were talking about this before we started recording. You know, this is one of those, well, if if you have a certain political orientation, you might look at that and be like, I don't see what the big deal is. Well, or if you not pay attention to... American history or accurate right. American history. It, 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 it's again, it's it's cutting out marginalized groups and further marginalizing them in an attempt to bolster your own view of culture and history and your own life in a way that just completely discounts others. <laughs> you right. know, it's it's so I I applaud CNN. This is not. This is not can- cancel culture. Blah, blah. This is this is a legitimate reaction to uh, what I view as a a horrific and terrible comment uh, made, yeah, it, which is the least surprising thing ever coming from this particular individual. Uh, mm-hmm. But it doesn't. It still doesn't give him, <laughs> you know, the right to do that. Uh, I mean, he no. he's got the First Amendment right to say whatever he likes. He, he doesn't have the right to be free from consequences for it. Right. I, I keep thinking that, you know, this argument against cancel culture is just, well, I don't want consequences for what I say. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. That's just not how the world works. Right. There you're are not going to be locked up say. for it. That's your not, no yeah. consequences. You're going to, you're free to say that in terms of government action. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah. a private employer can absolutely fire you for things you say that are bad. Right. Well, and uh, so I have made some poor Twitter decisions this week. And my normal MO is that if I get really upset with someone that I have to block them, I donate somewhere between $20 and $50 to the ACLU or the ACLU of Minnesota. I spent a lot of money this week. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, but I always tell the person I'm blocking, like, thank you, because now I'm going to block you. And now, the ACLU gets 50 bucks from me because I believe you should have the right to say whatever you want to say, 
but that there should be consequences for it. And the consequence here is I'm donating to the people who will fight for your right to say whatever you want. Um, but that's just. But I don't have to listen to it. <laughs> I don't have to listen to it. Yep. So there you go. You've owned a lib who now, in your name, has donated money yes. <laughs> to an organization that's, you it's hate. It's the perfect reaction. It's the perfect reaction. I, I, I love that. Um, so uh, good on you, CNN, for, for yes. reaching the right conclusion here. Uh, for those of us who occasionally watch CNN, uh, great news. We don't have to see that guy on our screen anymore. <laughs> I'm sure they'll find another you know, right-wing talking head so that they appear to be balanced. Um, mm -hmm. hopefully it's somebody who, who does not make me think of the thing that you will all Google if you don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> well, or it'll save, you know, make my TV live longer. Yes. Or throw that. something at it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, moving on. I'm going to tell you a story here. I'm taking an article. This is from the Daily Gazette. And one of the things I, I love about kind of these regional or, or small town newspapers is they call themselves, it's the Daily Gazette. I couldn't find where it's from. <laughs> it's like, if you're here, you know. Oh, okay. Well, I guess. I, right? I like, know. What I did figure out is that the Daily Gazette is, uh, it appears to be out of Schenectady, New York. So this is in oh. the kind of Albany, uh, okay. Albany, Troy, Schenectady is a three city my parents both went to Union College in Schenectady, New York, so I know I've been there several times. Um, okay. And uh, so we're talking upstate New York, you know, maybe two hours up the road from New York City. And I'm going to spare you the headline. It's really just two hours from NYC? Yeah, it's not I far up. I took the oh. bar exam. Uh, when I took the New York bar, I didn't, if you don't live in New York State, you have to take the, the bar exam in Albany. I lived right across the river in New Jersey. Uh, I could see New York out my window. I looked right at the Statue of Liberty, right? Which, well, that's a question about New York, New Jersey. So we won't use right. that. But I, I walk out on my street and I, I would see Lower Manhattan. I still, you know, people who, who who lived in Westchester County, much farther from the city, could take take the exam in the city. For those of us who were living in New Jersey, we had to go up to Albany. It's just a couple hours up the road. Okay. Um. Yeah. Anyway, I just live I, I in a much bigger area, I guess. So. Yeah, well, in the Midwest and, and the West, you know, we're used to hopping in the car and driving five hours to get somewhere, and it's just right. no big deal. Five hours on the East Coast, where I grew up, like, I could be from Philly to Boston. <laughs> yeah. Right? Okay. Which feels a lot farther, mostly mm -hmm. because of traffic. <laughs> so, and because of all the stuff you pass through on the way, as opposed to just a lot of, you know, desert. So. Yes. Yes. Literally so, so this this story is is out of where is this out of? This is out of. Hold on, I have too many pages here, and I'm out of order. Uh, Johnstown. That must be Johnstown, New York. Okay. And we're going to talk about a guy named James A. Duffy. He worked for a guy named Georgios Cacavelos at okay. Cacavelos's sub shop. So local substation number nine. So you know, sandwich shop. He'd worked there for about a year. He says he worked about 70 hours a week. You know, I may, may want to talk to Georgios uh, about that at some point yeah. down the road. But Georgios has bigger problems, which we're, we're going to talk about. <laughs> um, one day, this is back in 2019, uh, Cacavelos picked Duffy up, doesn't say where or why, and said, we have to tie up some loose ends. 
Duffy didn't initially know what Cacavellos meant by that. But the next day, Cacavellos expanded on it and told Duffy, we have to take Allie out. Allie is Elizabeth Lamont. And I'm just going to say she spells Elizabeth A-L-L-Y-Z-I-B-E-T-H. Okay. That's very phonetic. Uh, I've never seen it spelled that way. Elizabeth Lamont. She was another employee of Cacavellos. George told me that he owed Allie money, and she was causing problems with the labor board, so he had to take her out. Oh. They Is talked the ab- reason she was owed money because she worked for him, too? Unclear whether it was he owed her money, like, salary, or whether, like, okay. like she'd lent him money for some reason. Uh, Article okay. doesn't get into that. Okay, because uh, he has a problem with the labor board if he's got an employee working 70 hours a week. But, okay. Which is a different employee. We don't even know what the issues that Allie had <laughs> right. that she's bringing to the labor board are. Okay. So so he says we have to take her out. They talked about how. Duffy said he didn't want to. Good on you. <laughs> good good uh, job, Duffy. But ultimately agreed. <laughs> Bad on you. Cacavellos. Go with your instincts, Duffy. Go with your instincts. <laughs> right. Cacavellos uh, gave Duffy $800. On October 25th, $500 on October 26th, and $300 on October 27th to kill Lamont. Oh, no, no, no. Way undercut. Way, like, these are sub-minimum wages for assassin work. Right. Or to assist him in killing her. They (sighs) finalized that plan on Sunday. Duffy would use a baseball bat. Cacavellos would use a large black contractor bag. Uh, they made plans for the aftermath to prevent evidence from being left behind. That Sunday, October 27th, Duffy couldn't go through with it. He decided he couldn't go through with it. Fair. They left for Gloversville, don't know where that is, uh, for Duffy to get some drugs. <laughs> they spent that Monday. Just a little bit of illicit drugs will change his mind. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, uh, you know, or, or, <laughs> or another theory get him in a state of mind where he could do this. Yes. They Mm -hmm. spent that Monday unloading shelves and picking up an oven. Duffy started drinking on the way back, and Cacavellos said, we have to do it today. Cacavellos told Duffy to bring extra clothes. Always do that if you're going to commit a murder, apparently. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. Duffy ordered some crack cocaine. I'm literally reading this right out of the article. I don't have context (laughs) for a lot of this. And it just reads, this is how it reads. He received it, meaning the crack cocaine, and he and Cacavellos went back to the shop. By 7.15, they'd closed up for the day, uh, and a neighboring store also closed. I don't know why that's relevant. Cacavellos (laughs) asked Lamont to go back and do the dishes. The plan was that when Cacavellos went back there, Duffy would attack her with the bat. Ah. He and he did. <gasps> Duffy and Cacavellos joined in with the bag. This must be like a really heavy. I'm, I'm trying to understand. Like, I don't. Is it I, like a the, contractor bag? Like contractor super bag? Heavy black yeah, it's like, yeah, it must be like yeah. Okay. Cacavellos also told Duffy to get a hammer and attack her with that as well. <gasps> he Cacavellos also used the hammer and choked her. After killing her. They put her body in Cacavellos' car and looked for a place to get rid of her. Okay, so you always have the exit plan before you kill the person. 
Well, so, right, and it said like, that they'd done some planning on this, but then, uh, then it sounds like maybe they didn't. I don't know. So, okay. Cacavillas brought bought, uh, brought fertilizer, cement, and shovel. So <gasps> clearly, some planning had been happening in advance. They drove till midnight. Ended up on exit thirteen of the I eighty seven on ramp. I think that's that's exit thirteen of the of the New York State Thruway. Uh, no traffic. They pulled over and put the car hood up. They left her body in the woods and returned the next evening after dark and buried her in a shallow grave under fertilizer, cement, and some sticks. They continued discarding or moving evidence until sometime that Wednesday for the next two days. And then the statement ends with, then we went down to the hoagie shop and the police were there and took us to the station. (laughs) So don't help your boss kill someone is kind of the... The message here? Yeah, so they were arrested. Um, they were indicted early in 2020 on charges that included first-degree murder. Duffy is clearly talking and yeah. getting a reduced sentence. Uh, Cacavelos, um, so Duffy pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of second-degree murder. He's expected to get 18 years to life. Mm-hmm. Um, and Cacavelos complete, maintain, completely maintains his innocence. Uh, and his attorney's comment here is he's been waiting in jail to tell his version of events for nearly two years. I imagine a lot of that's because of COVID. Uh, I've been with him throughout that process, and he's been steadfast in his position. Um, so terrible case, terrible yes. outcome. Kate, should you kill your employees that have a problem and report to you to the labor board? No, because not only will you have criminal problems, you will have whistleblower problems because death, I would assume, is the ultimate of retaliation and other duties as requested on your job description does not include killing someone. So, right, so that you should not well solicit your other employees <laughs> to do that for you. That's also wow. not appropriate. No, not appropriate. Mm-mm. So again, I don't mean to be making light. This is, it's obviously a it's serious, a terrible, yeah. serious case. It's just, it's one of the first ones I've ever seen. And, and admittedly, there's not a lot of context here. So I don't know what. Right. I, it's, it's like a bad Hollywood movie. It, right? And it's like, as as stated in this article, you know, I mean, you, you hear about people putting out hits on other people over over sums or issues that are Mm -hmm. make or break life and death kinds of things. This just seems right. Right. Which doesn't ever justify it, but at least you can, you can look at those and be like, well, I guess they didn't see any other way out, which doesn't (laughs) make it okay. But like you, you at least can, can grasp the thinking of the person committing the murder Mm -hmm. in, in a case like this. It's so disproportionate. (laughs) You owed her a little money. And she went to the labor board? Hire an attorney. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hire an attorney. You know, maybe because it's a sandwich shop, maybe they were taking the Jimmy John's route and had a non-compete. And she was thinking of starting a new place and needed one to report to the labor board what was happening. Ugh. No, please don't kill your people, people. Don't kill your people, people. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Um, I'm actually going to write that down because it's a good, uh, it's a good head, uh, uh, episode title. Headline, episode title. Don't, <laughs> don't kill your people. 
people. <laughs> Don't forget okay. the comma for a direct address. So Yes, exactly. Now, um, do we have a little sex left? We do. Oh, good. And I haven't, just so you all know, I have not prepped either that last case or this one with Kate other than very, very high-level themes without talking <laughs> so uh, about it because, you know, you are getting her genuine reaction here. <laughs> yes. Um, have you ever heard of Erica Lust? <laughs> no, but I already love her. Mm-hmm. Erica she made Lust. it through middle school with that name, so well, she's a resilient type. I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that this is not the name she was born with. <laughs> okay. Or married into. So, okay. Oh, well, I, I'm i guessing not. <laughs> I'm guessing okay. not, Kate. Okay. Erica Lust is a Swedish erotic film director. Oh, well, stage name. There you go. Stage name. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, um, I took the liberty upon seeing this article to do some research. Did you tell Tracy you were doing this research? Tracy sent me this article. <laughs> Tracy is Mark's wife, by the way. <laughs> yes. Uh, Tracy sent me this article. And uh, when I told her I took one for the team and did a little research, <laughs> uh, she started giggling and left my office. This was about 15 minutes before we started, before we went live here. That's um, awesome. Okay. Uh, Erica is a coins herself as a feminist pornographer uh, with sex positive porn for women. I'm all uh, for it. A, a very small taste of that. It looked very professionally and and classy, <laughs> uh, classily done. Um, and we'll leave it at that. Mark Oliphant, the Roger Ebert of feminist porn. Okay, you got to start somewhere. You got to start somewhere. So, um, this is from, it looks like an Instagram post from Lad Bible. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I'll skip the headline and I'm just going to read you the story. <laughs> Erica Lust, try that again. Erica Lust, boss of Erica Lust Films, is hoping to normalize masturbation by allowing okay. her 36 members of staff a half-hour masturbation break every day and has even set up <laughs> has even set up a private masturbation station oh, at gross. the office. Oh, gross. Gross. Okay. At least it's, al- it's alliterative. Mm-hmm. Lust decided to offer the break after noticing her staff were agitated and performing with less energy during the pandemic. So she launched... <laughs> The initiative to coincide with Masturbation Month, which is May. See the things you learn on this podcast? (laughs) But plans to allow staff to make the most of the extra 30-minute break for the rest of the year. After 2021 is over, no more doing that at work. It only counts for this year, apparently. I mean, you go back to the work January 2nd. Can't. Just going to have to go to your car, apparently. Can't do that anymore. Uh, Kat, who is head of communications and content at the company, said, a masturbation break at work can result in more focus from your employees, less aggression, more productivity, and better teamwork. (laughs) It's the teamwork there that, you know, because I'm happier? Like, why not just have a quack, quack sign? So... (laughs) 
Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna bring it back to that. Uh, <laughs> should employers <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. make a masturbation station for their employees? Is this a good idea? Well, I, so we can come at this from multiple different angles. One, just a general office hygiene thing. No. No, I think it's just gross. I think you might have an OSHA problem for bodily fluids as an issue. Yeah, I mean, Second, Sweden may not have an OSHA. We don't know. Based, <laughs> based upon their Eurovision submission, I think they probably do. Okay. Uh, okay. Two, the potential for harassment. Like, oh, you seem to be really agitated today. Why don't you go use the masturbation station? As to get a general release so that you're more comfortable at work today. Like, I just see that just going downhill so quickly. Right. (laughs) Right. I mean, is that harassment? Probably not once. But if it continues, (laughs) if it continues, uh, you know, every day, you seem really, you seem really tense every day. Every day. Why don't you go take mm-hmm. a break? You know, I don't know. I think wow. that's that's probably a bit a bit much. Um, is this as bad as the Quack Quack Club? Uh, I would say it's getting awfully close to getting as bad as Quack Quack Club. I mean, the Quack Quack Club has a a different issue because now you have relationships that right. could be hurt. And it's just you in a masturbation station. So maybe not as bad. It's definitely not as bad. It's not good. (laughs) But it's not not as bad. Right? But it could lead to that. Yeah, totally. You know, what? and what happens if two people need to use the room at the same time? (laughs) And then you get fights. And you get fights. Yeah. Workplace (laughs) violence coming, stemming from the masturbation station. Ooh, no, thank you. I'll pass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, me too. But um, you go, <laughs> Erica Lust. That's awesome. Uh, and uh, now you got some free advertising on our podcast. And and I would be really interested in whether or not, like, even though this is in Sweden, whether or not you could get coverage for ELP or employment liabilities protection. EPLI, you know, yeah. EPLI. I'm wondering, like, oh, well, we had a masturbation station. Well, now we have harassment resulting from the masturbation station. So, does that would that result in a denial of coverage? I think it would. Just an inch. I've been. It might. Playing around. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Is I, it negligence because you didn't take it seriously enough to re- prevent the harassment coming from the masturbation station? Ugh, I think the fact that you have designated it such doesn't doesn't help. Like, if you just have like a. Here's a right. private room where you can lock a door and take a break for a little bit. It could ultimately be the same thing, <laughs> but you yes. wouldn't. It wouldn't be designated for that pur- purpose, right? Right, right. Cool. Yeah. No, thank you. Oh well, that was an escalating <laughs> amount of stuff. Right. I said sex and violence. <laughs> Oh, which I am super excited, as I mentioned, to see this on the big screen again. Bring it oh, on. Oh, it's the new, new it movie. New movie. Mm-hmm. Yep, so. I'm ready. That's what so. we got today. <laughs> hope I you hope enjoyed it. it. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> Particularly on your commute. 
Yes, do not murder do and masturbation on, to to on the way to work yeah. while I listen in my car. Oh, awesome. Well, Mark, where can people find you? <laughs> they can find me on Twitter. Not at, in a masturbation station. Not generally, no, not in a masturbation station. That is not not typically a spot where you can find me. Uh, you can find me on Twitter um, mm-hmm. at Salad Pants. Uh, and you can find me on the Bullard Law website uh, at, well, I guess, Bullard Law. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that, I don't even know if, I guess we have a Twitter account, but I guess it's at Bullard Law. But oh. yeah, website, cool. Twitter. How about you? Uh, on the Twitters at K8BISCH or LinkedIn or ThriveLawConsulting.com. That's where you can find me. So thank you all for indulging me to have a week off. I hope you have a great week this week and a lovely Memorial Day. Uh, however you want to celebrate your Memorial Day, I hope it is a positive one. Likewise. We'll be back mm-hmm. in June. Yay. Happy Masturbation Month. Yes. Finish out <laughs> Masturbation Month. With a bang, everyone. <laughs> oh, everybody's got to listen to the end. Yes. Bye. <laughs>